1: We did it. I still can't believe we got this project done so fast and so well.
0: When I'm in New York,
1: I'm in Chicago and I'm in LA, but.
0: We're making it happen in Miro. Together. Our best work just happens faster on Miro's collaborative online whiteboard. No more scheduling meeting after
1: meeting for work that could happen from anywhere. Whether it's getting design feedback here, mapping timelines here,
0: or brainstorming next steps here. It all just happens on the Miro board.
1: Exactly. And it's nice not having to wait an entire day to get sign off from this guy.
0: Hey! Well, it is true.
1: See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com. The first three boards are free forever. That's M I R
2: O.com. Welcome to the Switchblade Sisters Social Club, a true crime podcast where two sisters exploit their worst fears for your entertainment. You're welcome! For more information, check
1: out our website at www.switchbladesistersocialclub.com, where you can also subscribe for bonus content, or find us
2: on Instagram and Facebook. Hosted by the Good Wives Network, audience discretion advised. Hi everyone. Welcome to our <laughs> podcast, Switchblade Sister Social Club, a true crime podcast where two sisters exploit their worst fears for your entertainment. You're welcome. My name is Dee and this is my sister Rhonda. Hi, Sisters. Hello. So, what have you been listening to recently? Okay, so
1: I just discovered this week an artist who I hadn't heard of before, but she's not new, but her name is Amanda Palmer. And oh my fucking God, I love it. Do you know her? I don't think I do. I'm going to check that out. Kind of a little bit punk. I only heard one song so far and just listened to it on repeat. The song is called Runs in the Family. New theme tune. Love it. You're going to love it. My old boss who owned or used to own a guitar shop that I worked in when I was 16 posted on Facebook and I was like, I fucking love this.
2: Well, I already love her picture on Spotify. Mm. So yeah,
1: Cool. Do you know what? I think it's if you like, if you like PJ Harvey. I do. Which we, yeah. Also, I think those kind of vibes. Oh, nice. Okay. Mm. Do you know what I listened to the other day actually as well? What? Okay. So you know how we have our joint Sis- Safier sisters playlist on Spotify, mm-hmm. which I love. It's like literally me and D made the collection of the best, our favorite songs.
2: Oh, we should post a link to it so people can listen to it as well. Oh yeah. Do you know what? Give the people what they want. They want to know what we're listening to. I have to admit, that is the one that I listen to when I listen to music. It's That's what I listen to. to. It's
1: everything. Do you know what? It's everything from 90s grunge to fucking garage. (laughs) It's everything. Do you know what? You know one song in particular that I was listening to? Bare Naked Ladies, One Week. And I just listened to it the whole of the school run, which for me is like 45 fucking minutes. I just listened to the song and repeat. It's just got a lot of energy, that song. It's not even my usual thing. I just love that song.
2: I struggle to listen
1: to that song. Why? Too Too chirpy? Yeah, a little bit annoying. I think I didn't really like it at the time, but now it's kind of nostalgic.
2: Mm, I'm going to try again. I'm going to mm. try again.
1: Joe you know and Else. Joe you know and Else is something I didn't really love at the time, but kind of it's so of the era is Smash Mouth. What's that fucking song? Hey, now you're an all star. wasn't for me at the time, but.
2: Most of the music that I listened to from that era is stuff I did not listen to at the time. Well,
1: Garage. I mean, <laughs> we were not into
2: that. 27 years ago but I think it's because when it's around all the time it gets a bit sickening when you choose to listen to it decades after you've been bombarded with it Mm. it's a different matter it's the nostalgia factor nostalgia as well yeah I told you last week that I'd caught up with true crime and cocktails so I'm now waiting for their weekly episode drop Mm -hmm. so I'm now going back and I'm listening to wine and crime catching up on the episodes that have built up in the meantime it's so good I love it so much Amanda is my spirit animal. They're three girls. They pair a wine to the different crimes. Sometimes it's a bit of a stretch, but it's still fun. So you learn a bit about wine at the same time.
1: Do you mean like if they're covering Jeffrey Dahmer, like what wine goes with human flesh?
2: (laughs) Well, they normally have a theme for each episode. So for example, the one I can remember the wine specifically, because I actually went out and bought it, was the Trust Fund crime episode. It was one of their early ones. And... They managed to find, do you remember Blue Nun wine? Yeah. So I don't think that in the States, Blue Nun wine has the same um, feeling as it does Mm -hmm. over here. (laughs) But like over here, it was the shit wine that you'd always give to the raffle. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. it tasted sickly. It was disgusting. Yeah. Blue Nun have got a gold edition, a limited edition. I don't know if it's limited, but they have a gold one that comes in a gold bottle and it has like gold flecks in it. And it was only about 22 pounds. I treated myself to a bottle because I thought how funny. And it was okay. It wasn't the best wine. I wouldn't buy it again at that price, but it was fun. So their trust fund crimes, they linked it with this gold edition Blue Nun. It had gold bits in it. Do you see what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, just been really enjoying catching up on that. I work with a lady called Martha on one of the charities that I work with.
1: Yeah, the one with the nice
2: hair. Yeah, she's got fabulous hair, doesn't she? I recommended to her, Serial. This podcast came out a good long time. It's about 10 years old, I think. So it was the first podcast I ever listened to. So it got me into listening to podcasts, and it got me into listening to True Crime podcasts specifically. Talking about nostalgia, it's that one for me. It's one of those podcasts where a whole season covers just one case and goes really into depth. And it's a boy, he was a boy at the time, I think he was 16 at the time, this guy called Nat Nan, who was charged and convicted with the murder of his girlfriend. The reason why I'm so excited is because when I saw her at the weekend, we were working at the weekend, she told me, I'm halfway through listening, I love it. And I was like, oh my God, you have to tell me when you finish so I can discuss the latest developments because only a couple of months ago, Adnan got released. Partly, I think, because of the media attention from this podcast and what happened afterwards, they reinvestigated and he got freed. I cannot wait. I'm, like, so excited about the moment where she tells me that she's finished listening to this podcast and I can tell her, Google him now, because look what's happened recently. That's the story? Yeah. Okay. You're not (laughs) excited for Martha and the fabulous hair? Excitement is not a thing
1: that I feel. You know how you always get it? frustrated with me because you're very excited as a person and you get excited about things and you're like, isn't it cool? I just, I, can't. I don't have that. I don't have yeah, that. You
2: are the one that's more dead inside. What's really exciting is when there's updates on the case. Like this is why I love when Crime Junkie, for example, when they do updates on the previous cases yeah. they've covered. And that leads me into today's episode <gasps> quite nicely. Okay. Okay. Because it's a slightly older case, but a lot of stuff has happened recently and it's still to be, like, we are going to have to do an update to add to the end of this because between recording it and releasing this episode, there's going to be a thing that happens that we will need to update on. Okay, cool. Can you give me clues? Am I going to know? I can give you clues. So it's British. Mm -hmm. It happened in the 80s. Okay. Okay. And I wanted to do this one soon after doing the Levi Belfield case. Because if you remember, Levi Belfield, they managed to convict him, even though it was in the 2000s. They managed to convict him without a shred of DNA. Yeah. They didn't have any DNA evidence. It was all like old fashioned police work and not that old fashioned because it's like CCTV cameras, but you know, no DNA, which is rare. This case is the first one where someone is not only released but convicted thanks to DNA.
1: Mm, Okay.
2: That's why I thought it was really, really good one to sort of do soon after Levi Belfield. I'm going to quote my sources because you haven't guessed. I haven't, you didn't give me much to go by. Okay, tell me. No, let me tell the sources and then I will tell you who it is, okay? Okay. The main source is this book because I'm really loving reading the books on the cases, you know? Do you know what, your dedication
1: knows no bounds.
2: The Blooding by Joseph Wambaugh. I'm totally saying that name wrong. He was a retired LAPD detective sergeant. So, you know, he knows this shit. The book was recommended in a talk that I listened to by my love, again, from the Levi Belfield case. Remember? Colin? Colin. <laughs> I went to a talk of his recently online because I couldn't attend it in person, where he recommended that book. I can't remember what context. So I got the book and... I didn't even know what case it was covering, but if Colin tells me he likes something, I'm going to fucking like that thing too. Yeah. So I got the book and found out it was on a case that I was really thinking about doing for this podcast anyway. So great. That book came out soon after the case wrapped up. But as I said, there's been some modern developments. I don't know why I'm saying that smiling because they're awful. I also used the... Leicester Police Twitter page, and <laughs> as well as the Police Gazette Twitter for some of the pictures that I'll show you, and some BBC articles, and of course, some Guardian articles. Of course. That's our favorite newspaper. Those articles were for the more recent developments that weren't covered in the book, obviously. This is the first case to use genetic DNA profiling to both clear someone of a crime and to convict someone of a crime. So super exciting you know, these things that we take for granted nowadays as having always existed. Both my love, Colin, and Steve Gaskin, who's also a former Scotland Yard Murder Squad detective. You asked him out. <laughs> I did. He he made his excuses. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's awkward. <laughs> I didn't ask him out romantically. I had a spare ticket to something I thought he'd be interested in. He was. He just couldn't make it. For a drink. <laughs> Steve, I'm still available for that drink. Anyway, so they were both talking about how police officers these days that are coming in, the new police officers, they are obviously of an age that they don't even remember a time before DNA. So this is why when you have a case like Levi, Belfield, where you have to resort to like more old fashioned, you know, traditional methods of policing, they don't want those skills to be lost because even in modern day, you can't always rely on DNA. So fucking tell me, what are we talking about? All right. So we are talking about the Narborough murders, i.e. the case of Colin Pitchfork.
1: Okay. I don't know this guy, but I, but you know, it's sounding good. Is
2: his name really Pitchfork? Yes. Fuck. <laughs> the minute that guy was born, you need to fucking get police surveillance on him. <laughs> I thought him that was cause... a nickname. No, no. I'm going to share my screen because I want to show you the area that we're talking about. Okay. Because it will help. So we're in the UK. We're in the UK. This is Leicester, which is kind of like Midlands, I think. Don't at me if I'm wrong with that. North of the M25. (laughs) And the area we're talking about is these three villages, Littlethorpe, Narborough and Enderby. These three villages right next to each other. And you saw they are fairly close. They're like four or five miles from Leicester City itself. At the time of the murders in the 1980s, the population of these three villages together was about 12,000 people. So really, really small, right? Three villages, 12,000 people. I don't know what the population is today. There is a psychiatric hospital in Narborough called Carlton Hayes Hospital. So we're going to start with Kathleen Mann. She was married for five years before her marriage ended in 1970. So she moved from Leicester to nearby Narborough for a quieter and safer life which is ironic because that is not what she found there. She had two young daughters and she was much happier there, even though when they first moved there, they were living in a cold water flat with outdoor toilet, which I think in 1970 was probably a lot more common. After nine years of being single, she met Eddie Eastwood at a singles club. He was very loud and he had loads of stories. Most of them were bullshit, but he was definitely very charismatic. That made me think of that joke. Oh, if you've been to Tenerife, they've been to Eleven Reef. It's a good one. It's <laughs> a good one. I feel like he was one of those type of people. Yeah, Eastwood wasn't even his his real surname. He changed it because of Clint Eastwood. What a dick! <laughs> he's not a dick in this story. He's just. Oh, oh, okay. I'm too judgy too soon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he might have been in this story. He's not playing the dick role. So, in 1980, when Linda Mann one of the daughters, was 12 and Susan Mann, the other daughter, was 14. Eddie moved in and they got married in the same year. So he's got uh, Linda and Susan as his two stepdaughters now. They moved into a semi-detached house near Forest Road by the hospital and the Black Pad footpath. Next year, Kathleen and Eddie had a daughter together called Rebecca. Susan, the older, older daughter, was known as a homebody And Linda was more outgoing and like keen to grow up, but like what teenager isn't and what younger sister isn't keen to be (laughs) entitled to the same privileges as the older sister. I wonder if people know who is the older one out of us too. Let's do a poll. Yeah. We're going to be hideously offended.
1: Been a while since I've had Botox, but it's coming.
2: (laughs) All right. Let's do a poll on that. That's going to be good for our self-esteem. Paul, make a note that we said we're going to do a poll on that. (laughs) Linda wanted to be a multilingual so she was studying French, German and Italian, bless her.
1: Oh god. Okay, that means something bad's happening, okay? Yeah. Oh.
2: On the 21st of November, 1983, which was a Monday and very cold, Linda went out. She was wearing tights, blue jeans with zips at the ankles, white socks and black tennis shoes. She was also wearing a donkey jacket with a stand-up collar. And for those of you, like me, who had no idea... Yeah, I was going to ask. Okay, let, I Google image searched it, so let me share. Donkey jacket? Yeah. It's basically like a, a kind of more like a workman's utilitarian type jacket. So she was wearing that too. <laughs> Linda also had a wool scarf in her pocket. She walked up two different roads to get the bus to her school And then she came home on the school bus that day and went to babysitting at 5 p.m. on a nearby housing estate. She was babysitting until 6.20. When she was done, she went home and had a quick dinner with Eddie, her stepdad, and then was off again at 8.45 for another babysitting job. Bless her. Also, why are you letting kids babysit kids? Oh, God. I mean, I did it as well. But it's like, seriously, I would have no fucking clue what to do in an emergency. You were so good. Though. I remember the
1: kid you used to babysit. You were so good. Yeah, I mean, I fucking wouldn't.
2: <laughs> there were some times where I babysat when the parents were at home and they just wanted someone to entertain their kids while they had mm. their friends around. That I can understand much more because obviously the parents are there. But a teenager is not going to be good in t- in, a, in times of a crisis. And that's what I would worry yeah. about. I, I wonder if it's as acceptable these days. Because obviously when we were younger, it was totally cool. But So she goes to another babysitting job for a lady called Mrs. Walker. But she gets to Mrs. Walker's house. And Mrs. Walker is waiting outside and said that she didn't need Linda because she was ill. So she wasn't going out and she didn't need a babysitter. This was at around 6.55 p.m. Linda said she might go home or maybe visit some friends in the nearby village of Enderby. She told her mum, Kathleen, that she was going to go visit her best friend, Karen Blackwell. She wanted to drop off one pound fifty to Karen's mum, who had ordered the donkey jacket for her from a catalogue. Also British, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so British, yeah. Linda said she'd probably hang out with Karen for a little bit, but that she would definitely be home by 10 p.m. At 7.10pm, someone sees her walking down Red Hill Avenue, and at 730 she arrives at the Blackwell's house and gives Mrs. Blackwell her £1.50. She then went off, I don't know whether her friend Karen was home or not, but she went off to a friend Caroline's to get a record that she had lent her. Do you know what, honestly, this whole thing just like portrays UK village life, even the names of that era, do you know what I mean?
1: The names were so of the era. Oh, it's going to turn sad. Okay, keep going.
2: Yeah, so she walks down Forest Road and then she goes up the Black Pad path and she's not seen again alive. Her parents, Kathleen Mann and her stepdad, Eddie um, Eastwood, had gone to a ladies' dart tournament that night at the Carlton Hayes Social Club and then to the dog and gun for drink and darts until around 12.10 a.m. They arrived home at around 12.30 a.m. Susan was still awake and told them that... Uh, linda had not returned home yet eddie drove around all the sort of gathering spots in the village where teenagers would hang out and he also searched the black pad on foot knowing that if she'd gone to this other village she might have walked down this path it's really sad because he must have passed within yards of her body when he was looking down the black pad they called the police at around 1 30 a.m to report linda missing Which is just like, I know she's 15, living at home, et cetera. But you remember in last week's episode where you said that it took them three years to report Kathy missing? Yeah. Sad. At 7.20 a.m. on Tuesday, the 22nd of November, the next morning, a hospital porter was using the black pad footpath as a shortcut to the psychiatric hospital and saw what he thought was a mannequin. But as we know, it's never a mannequin. (gasps) Oh, no. It was, sadly, the body of Linda Mann. She was naked from the waist down and there was blood on her nose. The hospital porter ran to the road to flag down a car, which was actually driven by one of his colleagues who came to have a look. They found that the gate was open of the fence that was separating them from the body. The bottom half of her clothes, her jeans and stuff were in a pile around 10 or 15 feet away from her body. Her legs were straight out and her head was turned to the right. Her chin was bruised. And the wool scarf that she had in the pocket of her coat was tied around her neck. I'm going to show you a picture of the black pads. This is the footpath that she had been walking down. Like, I'd be nervous to be walking down there in the dark. And this was end of November. So it would have been dark around, you know. And this is the police officers doing a fingertip search of the area after her body had been found. Mm. Footpaths are not great places to be. The other day I I met a friend for a coffee and it was lunch. We had brunch together, bright daylight. And she walked down the sort of footpath through the parks to get to where we met. Mm -hmm. And she said that she was going to be going the long way home because along the sort of main roads because there was a guy who was just being really suspicious and she realized like fuck I'm alone and far away from people and you know what in 2014
1: the sister of one of my ex-students went missing along the Hanwell canal path Alice Gross oh yeah she was found a month later yeah and that was during the day
2: so I definitely recommend not walking down them on your Don't. own ever. You can walk all the way from my house to Twickenham Station through parks and along the River Crane and through these footpaths. They're gorgeous. It's so nice. You feel like you're sort of miles away from people and busy cars and all that kind of stuff. I never do it on my own. Doesn't matter nope. what day, time of no. day. No. never. No. You're never safe is our point. Yeah. Okay. So I showed you the pictures of the black pad where she was found. The Leicestershire Constabulary said that they normally get about one homicide a year at this time. And it's usually linked to domestic issues. As we mentioned a couple of times, most murders are committed by someone you know. And so therefore it's quite often the partner or family member that commit the murders, as sad as that is. But this year they had had four murders so far, including a really, really sad case that I might cover later on, Caroline Hogg. She was a five-year-old who disappeared at a fun fair in Edinburgh. Oh, God. It's thought that she was dumped out of a car while someone was traveling south from Scotland, and she was dumped in the Leicestershire area, and therefore Leicestershire constabulary were responsible for investigating the murder, which must have been really tough, because obviously most of the clues would be... you know what I mean? It occurred in a totally different place. It must have been yeah. really hard to coordinate, and unsurprisingly... As a result, possibly they never found the murderer. Well, up until this point, they hadn't. I haven't researched to see whether they have. There was also a pet groomer who had been stabbed and left in some meadows. So, yeah, it was a really busy year, basically, for homicides in the Leicestershire area. Detective Chief Superintendent David Baker, who had been a police officer for 27 years, he arrived at the scene at 8 30 a.m.
0: How- When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply.
2: And Inspector Derek Pierce was the main um, inspector on the case. He also appeared soon after. He was really keen to redeem himself after having been on the unsolved Caroline Hogg case. FYI, he had an English sheepdog named Ollie. The book I read quite often mentioned the pets people had, which I appreciate. So I will relay them to you because (laughs) (laughs) I have a dog called Lola, FYI. It builds a trust factor. (laughs) Yeah, there was already several detectives on the scene and 30 uniformed officers tracking dogs. Eventually, there was 150 people working on this case. So it was taken seriously. Eddie went to work and was told there that a body had been found on the black pad. So he went straight to the black pad and had to identify the body of his stepdaughter. Kathleen was reportedly in a daze and couldn't follow what was going on at all that day, which is not a surprise. The postmortem was conducted on the 23rd of November at Leicester Royal Infirmary, and they uh, um, found stains on the vulval hairs. Mm-hmm. semen stains. And it's also noted that she was five foot two and 112 pounds. So for conversion's sake, that's around 50 kilos and just under eight stone. They're tiny. Yeah, she's tiny. She had facial abrasions and it's suspected that she may have been punched in the face. She had bruising around both clavicles. So on her chest higher up. So she might've had a heavy blow to the upper chest, or she may have had someone kneeling on her for leverage. Her own scarf was used as a ligature to strangle her. There was no damage to the anus or vagina, thankfully. She was probably conscious at the end. And as I mentioned, there was dried semen found on her body. The bottom half of her clothes were probably removed by herself and her body had been dragged a distance, probably by her donkey jacket. Her jeans had been ripped down and off. And this is a quote from the autopsy. Sexual intercourse was attempted, but premature ejaculation probably occurred but the suspect managed to penetrate the victim prior to death. Sorry, that's a little bit confusing. There's no damage, but it seemed that he did manage to penetrate her. Ugh, just awful. The semen found on her body was used to identify that the person who committed this crime, because DNA was known to be a thing at this point, point. and obviously the whole purpose of semen are, it's a delivery package for DNA. That is the point of it, to impregnate and transfer the DNA to the egg. So they knew there was DNA in it, but they didn't know what they know now and they couldn't do what they could do now. So they managed to identify from the semen, the DNA in the semen, that this guy was a type A secretor, blood secretor. So not all men are secretors. Not all men will reveal their blood type in their semen, but this guy was, and he was type A blood and he had an enzyme profile that made up only 10% of the male population.
1: Wow. Okay. Okay. I'm surprised they, yeah, I'm fascinated by what they can discover about somebody.
2: Yeah. The problem is they now need to find someone to compare this to, right? And it's not enough to convict someone, it is enough to potentially rule out people. Detective Pierce caused a load of tension within the family because he subscribed to the theory, which is more than a theory, that most murders are committed by someone that you know. So his first step was to test Eddie, the stepdad. Like I said in the the Levi Belfield episode, Thanks to Jennifer Reese, we we know that only about one percent of murders are committed by serial killers, and the majority of the rest are committed by people you know. But luckily, a blood test quickly eliminated Eddie, which is good because then they can focus. Yeah, I mean, you never know how you're going to react when someone when you lose someone you love, and especially in such a horrendous way and well before their time. But ideally, you would just have to acknowledge, okay, I know in the most case it is someone within the home. Yeah. Just fucking test me so you can and eliminate the me investigation, so that yeah. you can focus. Exactly. Like, let's just get this out of the way. Detective Pierce, who wears glasses, noted that so did Linda. She was really short-sighted, but she never wore her glasses. So he thought maybe she thought she knew her attacker until it was too late or something. You know, it, it's not helped by the fact that she's walking down this dark lane at night without her glasses. You know, maybe she didn't see the person before it was too late. Maybe she thought it was someone she knew before it was too late. Maybe it was someone she knew and she didn't see that they were holding a weapon before it was too late. Who knows? Needless to say, fear quickly spread throughout the quiet village of Narborough. It wasn't commonplace to have murder. The police opened up an incident room in Narborough in a former medical residence, a doctor's residence that belonged to the Carlton Hayes Hospital. This residence was called the Rosings, which I think is just too cute a name for a police incident room for murder, but you know. They didn't name it. (laughs) So police started looking at people in the area with indecency offenses, and they went house to house in the three villages, and they took note of every male between the age of 13 and 34. And the reason why they chose this age range is because of the sperm count in the sample found on Linda Mann. Because it was quite a high sperm count, they figured that it was most likely a male between that age range. Interesting clever. Yeah, I'm amazed at how much they can decipher about a person. There was also a hospital team who looked at all the patients at the psychiatric hospital, the Carlton Hayes Hospital that we already mentioned in the last five years, including sex offenders, drug users, alcoholics, etc. 10,000 hospital patients were looked at. I mean, that's a big job in its own right. There was a day center as well called the Woodlands, which was linked to the hospital. And teenagers used to hang out around there. Linda had been spotted there a couple of times and whatever, so they made you know, inquiries around the area with people that hung out there. They got loads of tips coming in, as you can imagine. Uh, one in particular was a punk with a mohawk that was seen with a girl, but I just kind of think if you're going to go murdering or committing any be crime... be a little
1: more undercover, huh?
2: Like, when we were proper goths in, in our teenage years, and we used to get followed around by store security all the time, and it's like, do you think if I was going to come on the Rob, I would make myself this fucking <laughs> obvious? right? Yeah. So anyways, meanwhile, fucking other people wearing just, you know, gap clothes. I don't know. Puffer jackets back then. <laughs> yeah. Filling their puffer jackets with lipsticks and whatnot. Yeah. On the 15th of December, it was announced that lights would be put up along the Black Pad footpath, which seems like a really positive development that came out of this, I suppose. Just interesting to note. This fact broke my heart. Linda Mann was killed end of November, and that Christmas, Kathleen distributed presents bought by Linda because she had been so organized that she had bought her Christmas presents super early.
1: It's sad, because she sounds like she was a nice girl.
2: Yeah. Within the next few months, there were still about 100 officers on the case, and they had taken over 3,000 statements and followed 4,000 lines of inquiries. It was being taken seriously, but they were still not much further. I mean, I suppose they were in that they were eliminating all these people. On the 22nd of January, police constable Neil Bunny had on his list a house in Littlethorpe in Hay Barn Close, owned by 25 year old Colin Pitchfork. He had recently moved to the area with his wife, Carol, and his baby from Leicester, mm. five miles away.
1: Oh.
2: Yeah. Do you want me to show you a picture?
1: Yeah. I don't want to see, but I also want to satisfy my curiosity god so he had a baby and he was a fucking killer
2: i mean it's so easy in hindsight to be like that guy looks evil but realistically you wouldn't he just looks like a normal fucking just yeah like literally just a boring regular guy Mm -hmm. so this is the first time he kind of came on the radar remember they were doing house to house interrogations of all men in that age bracket he comes into that age bracket He also got a little extra points in terms of like, let's look at this person because he had a history of flashing, which I will go into it a bit, which comes under indecency offenses. We'll go into this more. Yeah. I also have to rant about this because he fit the age group, because he lived in the area because of his indecency. They obviously went to his house and they queried him and they interrogated him, but he was made lower on the list because he actually only moved to the area one month after (gasps) Linda Mann was murdered. But he had ties with the area because his father-in-law lived there and he was only in Leicester, five miles away. It's not like that fucking far, you know? But because he had these previous convictions of indecent exposure, they were also asking him. Now this book, The Blooding, loved it, but it is an old book printed in the 1980s. So in it, it claims something that I'm sure would not be printed today, that psychologists believe flashers are usually harmless.
1: Oh my God. Well, we know that that's not true because of Sarah Everard.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is now far more believed that it is a sort of gateway crime.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean,
2: in itself, it's horrendous. But quite often you hear about these people that go on to commit horrendous crimes and where did they start? Flashing, exactly. I mean, it's all about testing the boundaries and your behavior and your kinks kind of escalating. Yeah. We don't want to kick shame on here unless it involves people who are not giving their consent. And victims of flashing are not giving their consent. And yeah. obviously these murder victims also not giving their consent. So I will rant about this further later on. Colin gave his whereabouts on the night of Linda Mann's murder. He dropped his wife off at night class and went to his old house where they were still living in Leicester. He was alone with their baby between 6.45 and 9.15 p.m. Colin was then left to it. Linda Mann's family were only allowed to bury her body 10 weeks after the murder, which again is heartbreaking. In February, police are still focusing on this punk that had been reportedly seen with a girl on the night in the murder. They distributed a thousand posters with an artist impression. I tried really hard to find an example of that poster.
1: God, imagine being a punk in a small village up north back in the 80s. Fucking hell. (laughs) I mean, I remember when we first moved here to London in 1990, I remember they were still like, I actually loved seeing all the punks in town because, like, you know, even in London postcards, you still see a lot of punks. It's such a part of the culture, especially of that era. But being one small town up north.
2: (laughs) Yeah, small town punks, we feel for you. That couldn't have been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, the murder squad decreased to only about eight people as the clues dried up. They wrapped up the investigation at Easter time. So, remember, she was murdered in November. So, the following Easter. At this point, about 150 blood tests had been taken, with about 30 possibilities still on the suspect list. Now, is it just me or is 30 possible suspects? That doesn't seem like that much. That feels like keep on going. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I'm
1: trying not to be judgy with police investigators because I have zero qualifications (laughs) anything to do with crime and law. But sometimes it seems like fucking madness. Sometimes the
2: decisions that were made. I don't even know if Colin Pitchfork was on that list of 30 people, to be fair. okay. so this was 1983. Just to put it in context, that's the year I was born. 1985, the year you were born, two years later. By coincidence, at the University of Leicester, so again, really close to where this murder had happened, there's a man, a genetic researcher called Alec Jeffries. He, alongside Peter Gill and Dave Werritt of the Forensic Science Service, developed DNA profiling, AKA DNA fingerprinting. Basically, they discovered that not only was DNA included in all biological material of a human or an animal, they obviously knew that DNA was in semen. I don't know whether they they knew it was in blood. And they might have known about saliva, but that was it. They didn't realize it's in everything. So to put that in context, if you touch something, you're leaving trace DNA. I don't know whether they knew about hair either. But, you know, basically every part of our body has DNA in it. Every biological cell component in our body contains DNA. But also they managed to learn how to differentiate between each individual's DNA. Okay. Wow. Because of this case or no, not because of this case. No, because of these guys research by coincidence in the university of Leicester, I'd say that because I wonder how this would have played out if that research had been done in another country or whatever, whether it would have been as useful in this case. I don't know. But yeah, what that means is if they have a DNA sample and they have you, they could take DNA sample from you and see if that is actually your DNA. So remember previously I was saying they knew he was blood type A, the suspect, blood type A, and with a certain enzyme makeup. So all they could say was at that point, okay, well, this guy has that, so he could possibly be the suspect. But it's not specifically saying this came from this guy's body, or it could rule someone out because he is blood type B, for example. But they couldn't couldn't match a person to a DNA sample. Whereas now with this research, they can. It's also thanks to them that they found out that you can compare DNA taken from a person to old DNA samples. So you can even, in theory, use this to help solve cold cases. And also, they learned how to separate this DNA from vaginal cells. So again, super useful in rape cases. Yeah. So this is all a year after? Two years after the Linda Mann murder. It was also this research that later enables us to have a DNA database. Previous to that, you had to have a sample and the suspect together to compare the sample to the suspect's DNA. To have his DNA. If it's in the database, you can use this to find out who the suspect is. Right? So Mm. previously, if you had DNA that you managed to find from a murder... Mm. Did they reopen the case? Do you remember this is new research, new coming out, takes a while for it to be adopted in practice. So this is very, very exciting stuff that's happening and the implications for crime detection is phenomenal. One year after the Linda Mann murder, Alex Jeffries and his team went public with their findings and in 85, Alex Jeffries predicted the chance of two people having the same DNA was zero, Oh, okay. This is with the exception of identical twins, fraternal twins. Wait, fraternal? Is fraternal twins identical? No. Oh, ours are fraternal. Oh, what are what's identical? When they look the same? <laughs> sorry, I thought they were called. For, oh, okay, whatever. I fraternal
1: is like when they're not identical, like what Che and Rio are.
2: <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> I'm an idiot.
1: No, no, no. The people who are idiots that ask me if mine are identical when they're a boy and a girl. <laughs> Oh, that being said, our dad asked me that. And I said what what I questioned about what the hell he meant by that. He said oh, I don't really know what it means. <laughs> I don't know what I meant by that question is
2: what he said. Anyway, so don't feel silly. Identical twins have the same DNA, but I've been reading recently that now with genetics having been developed and the study of genomes, don't ask me what a fucking genome is now the genomes are being more understood, we can also now differentiate between the DNA of identical twins. Because I remember an episode of Jerry Springer, I think it was an episode of Jerry Springer, where a lady didn't know which identical twin had impregnated her, and there was no Ooh. way of telling who the father Ooh, was. Jesus. I used to teach identical twins.
1: who used to like always swap themselves out, different classes, pretend to, <laughs> to be each other.
2: You would, wouldn't you? Of course. We would. We would. Wouldn't we? <laughs> Because it'd be fun. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. So two years after Linda Mann's murder, just a little point to remember for future reference, a hairdresser nearby was sexually assaulted, but she survived. So put a pin in that because it comes up later and it's super important, okay? In the meantime, so this is a new person coming into the picture. A teenage boy called Richard Buckland comes onto the police radar. He's a 17-year-old loner who prefers his own company. no. Sorry, that's not what I wrote. He's a 17-year-old loner who prefers the company of small children. And it emerges later he had been abusing them.
1: Oh, god!
2: So, again, just remember that name, Richard Buckland, 17-year-old teenage loner. I'm going to now move on to the Ashworth family. They live in Enderby, which, as you remember, is a nearby village. It's slightly less villagey at the time as it had more pups. We have parents, Robin and Barbara Ashworth. They live in a house with their two children, Dawn and Andrew. On the 31st of July, 1986, so this is almost three years after the Linda Mann murder, Dawn, who's also 15, she worked part-time at a newsagent and she had the summer holidays. During the summer holidays, she had a 9.30 p.m. curfew. She was very social and she used to go visit friends almost every evening, usually in Narborough Village during the summer holidays. At this point, I want to show you pictures of both Linda Mann and. Oh, it's going to be sad. And Dawn Ashworth. I know, but I just feel like they deserve to be remembered.
1: Oh my God. Wait, is the one on. Linda's the one on the left?
2: Linda's the one on the left oh. and um, with the shirt collar. They look like little kids. I know. They're so cute. I just wanted to show you the two pictures because I wanted to get across. These were children, they were poor sweet little baby angels. So on the 31st of July, Dawn went to work as usual. Her work was at, at this news agent. It was only a couple minutes walk away from her home. She got paid at 3.30 PM and walked home. She told her mother she was going to have dinner with her friends, Sue and Sharon in Narborough. And her mother told her to be home by seven o'clock because they had a friend's little boy's birthday party to go to as a family. Dawn went back to the newsagent then to buy some sweets to include in the present for the little boy. Mm. And she also bought herself a pale pink lipstick. Frosted. Yeah. She left the shop at around 4 p.m. and headed towards her friend's house in Narborough. She was wearing a white polo neck pullover and a multicolored blouse and a mid-calf white flare skirt with white canvas pumps. She was also wearing a blue denim jacket. There was a shortcut to her friend's house via a footpath. But people were still very wary of a killer being on the loose. I mean, it was only three years ago. They still hadn't caught anyone for Linda Mann's murder. But maybe at this point, people were getting a bit more lenient. Maybe they thought it was just like a transient person coming through. So Dawn had two options. She could either walk over the motorway or walk down 10-pound lane footpath. She was always told to go over the motorway. But on this day, maybe because it was still daylight, she chose to go down the footpath. She came out the other end of the path, on the side of the path where her friend Sharon Clark lived. Sharon wasn't there, so Dawn went to try Sue's house, but Sue wasn't there either. Dawn was last seen going back towards the 10-pound lane gate. Robin Ashworth, the father, left work at 4.40pm and was home soon after. Soon after that, he gets a call from Sue, Dawn's friend, asking after Dawn, but he told her Dawn's not home yet. Robin then takes the dog for a walk. He's an English setter called Sultan. (laughs) At 7 p.m., Dawn is still not home. Her parents were instantly worried. This was out of character for her. Barbara, the mother, went to drop off the birthday presents at the little boy's house and came straight home by 7.30. So clearly they were like, we're not going to party. We're going to look for Dawn instead. She tried Sue's house and learned that Dawn had not been seen since 4.30 p.m. Her parents and friends start searching immediately. When Dawn was not home by 9.30, which was her usual curfew, her parents called the police. So I guess they were giving her the benefit of the doubt, or thinking that she might have forgotten about the party. Just like Eddie, Robin, the dad, had, in his search, walked within meters of his daughter's body. Oh, God. Robin is interrogated, including about where he was on the night of Linda Mann's murder, and soon after... Dawn was found concealed by brush, naked from the waist down, underpants on her right ankle, shoes off, bra pushed up. There was blood on her left thigh, and she was wearing only one earring. She was found on 10-pound lane. She had many injuries, and many of them were post-mortem. And she was covered in insect bites and stinging nettles. So did the police automatically link the two murders?
0: We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply. Let me get to that.
2: Oh. Robin had to identify his daughter's body. She had bruising and abrasions on her face and chest. There were severe injuries to the perineum where the attacker had, sorry, this is really graphic penetrated both her vagina and her anus. This was done either at the time of death or post-mortem. She died of manual strangulation. Now more than 200 officers were allocated to the case. Villagers reported hearing screams at 5 p.m. and then a running (gasps) 20-year-old. Kathleen Mann made an appeal at this time, saying that anyone covering for the murderer of her daughter is now responsible for the second murder. And I 100% agree. Yeah. Someone may or may not have known something at that time that could have led. I don't know whether anyone knew anything at the time, but um, yeah. Yeah. £15,000 was offered as a reward to anyone with information leading to an arrest. On Friday, the 8th of August, the murder squad went to Richard Buckland's house. Remember the 17-year-old I mentioned before? Yeah. This is just over a week after the Don Ashworth murder. Because he'd been going around talking about this murder to colleagues and revealing information about the body that had not been made public. So, like, for example, she had a £10 note in her pocket from when she got paid that day. And he had mentioned this to a colleague. So he gets arrested He said he had slept until 10 or 11 that day because it was his day off. And then he rode around on his motorcycle. He claimed that he knew Dawn by sight, but not well enough to like talk to her. So he had seen her, but he didn't approach her. He then claims that he did talk to her and that he walked her halfway down the lane before leaving her after almost two days of interrogation. And we do know how these police interrogations can go sometimes. Richard Buckland confesses, in quotation marks. He said he tried it on, but then he blacked out and then only remembered coming to when he was running away. He then retracted this, though, and said he would like a blood test to clear himself. But then to add to further confusion, he confessed to sexually abusing a nine-year-old girl and his previous girlfriend. He always, always denied being involved in Linda Mann murder. But it was always thought by the police that this was done by one person, not two separate people. So it was an extra confusing factor that he was confessing to one murder, but not the other.
1: Mm-hmm. When he asked for the blood test, was it because he blacked out and he wanted to clear himself because he wasn't sure?
2: Yeah, he requested the blood test to clear himself. But is it because he didn't know? Who knows? Because he came up with a bunch of different stories. Yeah. So, And again, we don't know what happened in those interrogations. And this reminded me very much of the Levi Belfi case. If you remember, the police department looking at the murder of Marsha McDonnell already had a suspect that they couldn't investigate further because of the Mental Health Act and because he was in a mental health institution. But because he was in this institution, they know for a fact he could not have committed the murder of Amélie de La Grange in Twickenham a couple of years later. But... The police looking at that case were convinced that the Marshall McDonald case was in fact committed by the same person. I mean, I don't envy being a police officer, especially looking at murders. So we go back to Alec Jeffries, the DNA king, we'll call him. He compared the semen found on both murder victims and to a sample from Richard Buckland. And he conclusively proved that both victims were killed by the same person and also that that person was not Richard Buckland. And this was. The first time someone was cleared of a crime using DNA fingerprinting. Isn't that crazy? In the UK or anywhere? Anywhere. Wow. Jeffrey says, I have no doubt whatsoever that he would have been found guilty if it had not been for DNA evidence. And they would have. he had already come up as a person of interest in the Linda Mann case. And he confessed, even though he retracted it. And he knew stuff. The family of Richard Buckland decided not to take legal action against the police. Because the police had agreed not to prosecute the other sexual offences, including the assault on the nine-year-old. And to that, I asked, why the fuck not? Come on. He's just going to do it over and
1: over. I mean, one thing we knew, we know about criminals like that, sex offenders, violent crimes, murders,
2: is that they re-offend. Yeah. And that it often escalates as well. Fucking hell. I mean, it's just awful. Police then had to uh, reopen the investigation into the murder of Dawn after putting to the side all the tips and leads that had been coming in since they had started focusing on Richard Buckland. In fact, some of the police officers were actually still focusing on Richard Buckland because of how new DNA evidence was and therefore how little they trusted it. An anonymous message comes in, Mm -hmm. one of nearly 2,000, saying to look more closely at Colin Pitchfork in neighboring Littlethorpe. I'm going to go into more details about Colin, but what, knowing what I know now, I'm 100% sure that the anonymous message, the anonymous caller, was Colin's father-in-law. Oh, okay.
1: Okay. Wow.
2: Yeah. Who always hated him. So if you remember, Colin had already been questioned over the Linda Mann murder, along with a whole bunch of other people. Because he was of the right age bracket and also because he had a record of indecency because of his flashing. He was dismissed because he had only moved to the area one month after the Linda Mann murder. But he only lived about four or five miles away previously. And he already had ties to the area, like I said, because after one of the flashing convictions, he got referred to the Carlton Hayes Psychiatric Hospital, which is right next to the Black Pad footpath, as a result for counselling and so forth of her treatment of some kind. His father-in-law also lived in the area, so they would have come to the area. On the 2nd of January, 1987, so January after the murder of Don Ashworth was in July 86, the police announced that all unalibied men were going to be asked to submit blood and saliva samples to eliminate them. This was supposedly on a volunteer basis, but obviously anyone that didn't volunteer would be considered highly suspicious. Smart move. Hence. The title of the book, The Blooding," this was the name given to this mass blood sample collection. There was nearly a 90% response rate at the beginning. And of course, police were looking very closely at the 10% that did not show. So basically, people would receive a letter, men would receive a letter in the post saying, your appointment time for your blood test is at this time. And anyone who doesn't show or reschedule or whatever... Naughty, naughty. You would have thought if you're innocent, you want to be the first one there to like clear me so that I don't have fucking problems with this and you can find the actual murderer, right? When people in- arrived for their blood tests, they were first interviewed by police to establish their identity. There was a specific self-employed card that was a photo ID and some people had passports, but not everyone. But if you remember, because our first driving licenses didn't have photos on them, did they? Did they not? Mine didn't. Oh, I don't remember, Dee.
1: It was at the same time. So like, I don't remember. Do you? I mean, how do you remember this?
2: (laughs) Anyways, at this time, your driving license did not have your photo on it. So that meant not very many people actually had photo ID. Travel was less common. So passports were less common, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's obviously one of the reasons why driving licenses started having photos on them. If the person giving blood did not have a photo ID, can you guess what the police would do? No. They would take a Polaroid and then go and confirm the identity with a neighbor or a colleague at a later date. I mean, is this reliable? Is that reliable? Well, they'd go up and they show a picture to someone and be like, Can you tell me who this person is? Okay, but still, like if you were
1: trying to cover up a crime for somebody, you wouldn't be like, Oh yeah, that's uh
2: I'm pretty sure this is why they started putting pictures on driving licenses. Yeah, I yeah. Even if it's reliable, it definitely seems like a lot of fucking manpower wasted, right? Yeah. Person power, I should say. The blood test was first to check whether they had the blood type A. And if you did, and you had that same enzyme category, then they would send your blood to Alex Jeffrey's lab for a full DNA test. So first they want to make sure if you're one of those 10% that match the blood type and enzyme profile. And if you were, then you would go off to do the full DNA test, which will produce the results that are yours and yours alone, right? And compare it to the sample they have from the murder scenes. Okay, so now I'm going to give you a bit of history about Colin Pitchfork. I've already shown you his picture so you can visualize him. Really, it just looks like a nothing guy. Colin was born 23rd of March, 1960 in Newbold, Verdon in Leicestershire. So he's a local. In 1976, he started his apprenticeship at a bakery called Hampshire's Bakery in Leicester. He worked there until his arrest, obviously moving up from apprenticeship to employee. He was a cake decorator and he hoped to start his own business. Apparently he was super talented at cake decorating. Here are some of the quotes from his supervisor about him. Let's see if they raise any red flags to you. Oh, God. A good worker and timekeeper. Great. Couldn't leave women employees alone.
1: Oh, for fuck's sake. Why does he even have a job? how do you keep your job? Oh off? my fucking God. Yeah, get rid of him. It, this is the problem. It was, men got away with a lot of shit.
2: I mean, I suppose I can understand not reporting him to the police. And we don't really know fully what this means. But surely couldn't leave women employees alone is enough to fucking get rid of you. To be honest with you, in my
1: not last teaching job, the teaching job before that, we had a horrendous line manager who was the most, he was like something from a carry-on film. Is this the one you tried to set me up with? No, 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 no. He was—he was actually a gentleman. He was a—he gen- was a gentleman. Yeah, too
2: nice for me. We decided.
1: <laughs> the uh, other one, Jesus Christ, should have been fired ten times over. He would say the most fucking inappropriate things. I mean, even when he left to go to a girls' school, I've once said to him, "Just keep your mouth. Don't just don't fucking say those things." Oh. You know? But anyways, yeah, just goes to show. Even in a school,
2: not so long ago, people don't get fired for shit like that. If you have employees like this fucking fire them at the very least. Like no one should be made to feel uncomfortable in the workplace because someone yeah. else's shitty behavior. <sighs> anyway, I mean I know it's like hindsight's 2020, but this alone, I don't think people realize how serious it is, how uncomfortable it is for the victims of people that are harassy, you know, it can escalate and it does. So, Colin and Carol met when she was working at Bernardo's home and he was volunteering. Both were about 19 years old. Colin was already four years into his flashing career at this point. He always, in his defense, and this is the last thing I will say in his defense, had been open with Carol about his history of flashing. Oh. And to that, I ask, what the fuck, Carol? Oh. He was a scout leader because his family were very into the scouts. They were like a scout family. Terrifying that he worked with kids. He got kicked out because of his behavior. And then so he just rejoined a neighboring scout group before the time of everything being computerized and online and blah, blah, blah. It's much easier for your indiscretions in one place to be unnoticed in another. So he was going for his Duke of Edinburgh Award, which for those who don't know, is when you have to do a certain amount of activities and community service and a bunch of other stuff. And then you get this prestigious Duke of Edinburgh Award. And that's why he was volunteering at the Bernardo's home. Colin and Carol got married, and while they were still engaged, Colin got done again for flashing. And this is the time that he was sent for counseling at Carlton Hayes Hospital, which was by the Black Pad footpath, where Linda Mann was murdered later. When Carol was pregnant with their first child, Colin admitted to cheating on her with someone from his cake decorating class. Colin managed to get Carol to forgive him, oh, this really sticks in my throat, saying their kid needed both parents. And this feels particularly cruel because, like, if they split up, it's her fault that their kid comes from a broken home and not his fault for cheating on his pregnant wife. He was definitely a prime manipulator. I don't know what's going on with Carol, that you know, she's so tolerant, tolerant or has these insecurities or these vulnerabilities that he manages to exploit. Yeah. But poor woman. Soon after the baby was born, they moved to Narborough because Carol wanted a fresh start because... She just found out her husband had been having an affair in her bed, even. And she wanted to move closer to her father, who she was very, very close to. In 1986, Carol finds out that Colin is having another affair and that that woman got pregnant.
1: For fuck's sake. How is this guy getting, like, so many women? I don't know.
2: Carol also describes Colin as being a control freak that wouldn't let her further her career because it was threatening to him, which I would have guessed that at this point, knowing what I know about him. Yep. Sadly, in 1987, January 1987, the baby from the mistress was born very premature and stillborn. Colin was distraught by this, especially because it was a baby girl and he always wanted a baby girl, which is even more sickening when you think of what he is capable of doing at this point, flashing and all sorts. January was also the time that he got his letter from the police reporting for voluntary blood testing for the Don Ashworth and Linda Mann murders. Colin approached not one, not two, but three different colleagues asking them to take the test for him. Did either of these three colleagues come forward? I will get to that. All of them declined, which I suppose is something, and he fed them bullshit like... I think he told them that he had, I think he told one that he had this flashing record. And so he didn't want the police to assume that he'd done it, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, they have this DNA testing. So even if the flashing, they will be able to eliminate you. If it's not you, like you're what, what he's saying is not making sense. Right. Hmm. He also claimed he was scared of needles, scared of police officers, scared of being set up, blah, blah, blah. He then approached Ian Kelly Who's a 24-year-old colleague who is often described as simple. Again, he is targeting people that are vulnerable, right? Yeah. Sorry, I'm just shifting and I want to use this as a moment to highlight our merch again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on one of those annoying sofas where the cushion cover slides out a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hate it. First world wine. Hate it. So he approaches Ian Kelly, who's a 24-year-old colleague, often described as simple. Colin claimed he had already taken the test for his friend who had a criminal past. So now he couldn't take the test as himself. Why would you do that? You know you're going to be called up, even if this was true, which obviously it wasn't true. But that's not a believable story, unless the person you're telling it to is, in fact, really simple. Yeah. Because you know you're going to be called up too. So he pressured Ian into taking the test. Colin doctored his own passport with a picture of Ian, which sounded super easy in the eighties. Like he picked up Ian after work and then they doctored the passport and then they went to the blood test. I can
1: just imagine them doing it with a sticky back plastic.
2: (laughs) Little Stanley knife. Oh my God. He didn't even bother doing it like the day before to make sure it was believable or whatever. He just did it on the day. Like it sounds like it was a five minute jobby. Colin even drove Ian to the blood test center. Colin was cleared of all the crimes. He got a letter in the post saying that he was cleared of the crimes and he confessed to Carol about the affair and the baby that died is stillborn. Carol kicked him out. (laughs) At this point, the mistress started calling Carol regularly, pestering her, telling her that she could have Colin whenever she wanted and so forth. That poor woman, you know, very little judgment there because she just lost her baby. She's in an awful situation. We don't know much about her. But, I mean, that's not really cool, pestering this poor Carol. (laughs) Like, there's so many victims. Apart from the two murdered girls, there's so many victims of this guy. And that's the thing, isn't
1: it? These people, these people who commit horrendous crimes are master manipulators.
2: Yeah. So the affair didn't last much longer, and then Carol let Colin move back in soon after. During this time, after the blood test taken by Ian Kelly, Ian Kelly says that he... There was loads of accidents that seemed to be happening to him at work when Colin was around. Like he felt like Colin was kind of intimidating him basically to keep quiet. By this time, nearly 4,000 men had been bloodied, which was the word used by the police to mean they'd had their blood test taken. But only 2,000 had been cleared because of the, there was such a backlog. But at this point, the response rate had gone up to 98%, which is, you know, yeah, good, I suppose. Detective Inspector Derek Pierce, remember the one that has the dog called Ollie, then gets himself into some shit. He was divorced, so he was single at the time. I can't remember what age he was, but definitely in the 30s. He starts pursuing a 21 year old WPC. Do you remember WPC, the term? No. What does that mean? Woman police constable. For fuck's sake. Oh. I just want to say I hate this term and I'm so pleased it's no longer in oh, existence. For fuck's sake. Because if you can't see anything wrong with this term, imagine if we added man in the front of You know, I was just going to say, title. I'm going to
1: go around and refer to everyone yes. who's any
2: who's any male that's working
1: as a male such and such, just, to, yes. just to, to highlight how fucking weird it is. It's weird
2: and obviously sexist. I'm going to start saying male prime minister. Man baker. No, because it's not even female. It's woman. So it would be man baker, man chef, man sailor. For see, because when you use it like <sighs> that, you realize how... Fucking ridiculous, it sounds. You know what? The 80s is full
1: of that. I know, We talk about the 90s being bad, but the 80s, for fucks. Yeah. And even before, obviously, 70s. I mean, you just got to watch some of these films to realize, like, carry on films.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like, I know there are a whole bunch of things that are getting worse and worse and worse, but there's also a lot of things getting much, much better. That's one of them, the, the fact that we don't call them WPCs anymore. So he's pursuing PC... WPC, but I'm going to call her PC, Alison McDonnell, who's 21 years old, and a disciplinary started after an altercation at her home where she got a minor injury to her face. Neither was suspended during the inquiry and Pierce continued on the case. I'll come back to that later. On the 1st of August, 1987, so a year after Don Ashworth's murder, in a pub called the Clarendon Inn in Leicester, something stupid and wonderful happened. Ian Kelly is in the pub with some of his colleagues for food and drink, and they start gossiping about Colin and his mistress, because the mistress also worked in the bakery, so they knew her as well, and the stillborn and how Colin always bothered the female employees. Ian tells the group that he took Colin's blood test for him. (laughs) Someone else in the group was one of the other three guys that Colin had asked to take the test for him. So he says, oh yeah, Colin asked me to do it as well, but I didn't. There's a female manager with them, And she was highly disturbed by this. Because obviously she understands the implications. Mm -hmm. Even if he wasn't responsible for the murder, he's hiding something pretty fucking bad if he's making someone else take the test for him. So it took her about six weeks to deliberate what to do with this information. It's been a year since the last murder, so I guess there's no massive rush, but there could be if he's on the warpath again. It's not definite proof that he did it, so do I take this forth. This guy works with me, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we would. We would. Okay. But it took this lady a couple of weeks. Yeah. Oh, it didn't take her the full six weeks. It just took that long because she wanted to first speak to the pub owner's son, who is a police officer, but also she wasn't sure how serious it was, but also how seriously she would be taken. Okay. So in the end, she did decide that with the son of the pub owner's help to tell the police and let them decide how serious this information was. So the police did take it seriously, luckily. They pulled up the signature from the blood test, from the form that you have to sign on the blood test, and from the form that Colin signed when they had come to his house to interview him after the Linda Mann murder. Oh, okay. They did not match, because Mm. obviously one of them was Ian Kelly's fake signature. Now, Ian had practiced and practiced and practiced the signature, but actually on the day of the blood test, He had the flu, and he was completely out of it. That's part of the reason why Colin drove him to the blood test.
0: How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox An important message from Blue Ridge Hospice. There may be several hospices now claiming to serve the area, but Blue Ridge Hospice is the only local hospice that has been serving here for 40-plus years, operates the only hospice inpatient care center, conducts the only community-wide grief and bereavement programs, offers a nationally recognized music therapy program in conjunction with Shenandoah University, outscores every other Virginia hospice in Medicare's quality scores, and so much more. Blue Ridge Hospice, the first, the best. Find out more at BlueRidgeHospice.com org.
2: And he said that he just could barely even see or write or whatever. And so that's probably why the signature was was horrendously bad. But possibly these signature experts would have spotted a fake anyways. So on the 19th of September, police decide to arrest Ian Kelly and the other colleague who had been offered 200 pounds by Colin to take the blood test for him. Ian confesses almost immediately and is arrested for conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. The police went straight around to Colin's house to pick him up. They arrested him, not for conspiracy to pervert the course of justice, for making someone else take the test, but they arrest him right away for the murder of Don Ashworth. Wow, okay. Which is a big leap, like a big step, and I'm glad they took it. While they were arresting him, one of the policemen asked him why Don he said, opportunity. She was there and I was there. God, it's so cold. Which just goes to show how fucking random yeah, these things can be. Yeah. In front of the police, he confessed to his wife that he had made Ian take the test for him. She asked, did you do it? And he said, yes. Wow. I wonder why he didn't deny it at first. I don't know. During the police interview, Colin kept saying he wanted to confess in his way and tell his whole life story. So basically, he's trying to control the room again, trying to control the situation, trying to control the narrative. So the Linda Mann murder, which happened even before he moved to the village, he had dropped Carol off at the night school and was looking for a girl to flash. The baby was in a carry cot at the back of the car. Oh, for fuck's sake. Ugh, that poor kid. You know, that kid must be our age basically now. hope that kid's doing okay. Thoughts going out to that kid. He got out of the car and flashed Linda, but rather than walking past him. So apparently he says that most people, when they get flashed, just carry on walking and pretend not to notice. Which I kind of understand. I believe
1: that because I've heard accounts of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're always told, ignore, ignore. You know what I mean? You're always told if you see a weirdo, walk past, ignore them. Just keep going. Yeah. Because you don't want to interact with them because you don't want to piss them off and something worse happen.
2: Well, Linda's reaction was also quite understandable, I think. Mm -hmm. Obviously, she noticed him. She got scared. She turned and she ran away. But she started running in the direction of his car and towards the dark footpath. She then froze because she didn't really know where to go. And she's blocking Colin's way back to his car. He was aroused because he'd flashed her. So he decided to grab her. He claims she didn't scream or struggle. He says she was terrified, but that she just let him rape her. Some people fight, fight, fight. Other people just go passive because they think that's their best chance of survival. She asked him at one point, what about your wife? And this freaked him out because she had clearly been very observant. She had noticed he was wearing a wedding ring. He was worried about what else she might have noticed and would she be able to recognize him? Because remember, he was moving to the village in a month's time. So he was worried, like, what if I bump into her? That's why he manually strangled her. He tried to hide her. She didn't really hide her very well. And then he strangled her further with a scarf that was in her pocket. He called this his insurance policy. And his kid is in the car. His kid is still in the car waiting for his dad to come back. Wow. Colin's next interview was about Don Ashworth. He was out getting food coloring for a cake that he was decorating, which just feels so contradictory and gross. That's such a wholesome activity. So had he planned, okay, he planned to flash, but not murder that night. Yeah, but he's not premeditating these flashes either. He just saw her and was like, oh, cool, I'll flash her. Interesting, because
1: like with Levi Belfield, they go and pursue, don't they? They follow and pursue and stalk. Yeah,
2: Levi Belfield, most of the girls, he approached them. They rejected him Mm -hmm. and then he attacked them. His attacks got increasingly more violent until he was murdering people. So he went out with his motorcycle. It was broad daylight he saw Dawn entering 10-pound lane and decided to follow her. Again, he was convincing himself that he was just going to flash her. He ran up behind her and then ahead of her to get ready to turn around and flash her. But she was too fast. And he said, I, I, didn't even, I wasn't even ready. I hadn't even opened my trousers yet. And again, like Linda, apparently she didn't run or walk in the, in the direction expected. She ran away in a different way and therefore blocked his exit. He was aroused and he followed her and attacked her. She begged him not to do it, but she didn't resist physically. She begged to be let go afterwards. She promised not to tell anyone. Colin said he used a judo strangle move from behind to kill her. He strongly denied, though, the level of violence he used in the rape and the murder. Because this rape, if you remember, there was a lot more physical damage to Dawn Ashworth's body. But he denied anally raping her he even denied hiding the body which led to a little bit of confusion about whether Richard Buckland might have perhaps found the body okay after the fact oh god you know what I'm trying to say Jesus Christ yeah I know I mean there's just far too many sick people in the world then after this Colin goes back home and bakes his cake during the interviews Colin confesses to flashing how many girls oh is it in the hundreds over a thousand oh, fuck. so for anyone who thinks that indecent exposure is a minor offense i want you to think about linda mann and don ashworth and sarah everard as well as all the other people killed by those who started off by flashing yeah colin apparently only ever got animated when he started talking about flashing oh, it just gives me the fucking creeps mm-hmm. colin was 27 at the time that he was charged with two murders and two indecent assaults. I hope this term isn't still in use because basically it was rape on the other girls. One was in 1979. And actually, I don't think he raped her. I think it was a sexual assault. And in A5, do you remember the hairdresser that I mentioned? Yeah. The girl in 1979 was a girl he abducted who managed to get away, luckily. There were crowds outside the court when Colin was brought to court for trial. And they were shouting at him that he was a murderer. And he said, yeah, that's right. I hate him.
1: So like Ted Bundy, he kind of was reveling in it. Yeah. Sorry, to honest, like a lot of
2: them, even what's his name, Richard Ramirez, they love the notoriety. Yeah, it's some of the appeal, right? Colin claimed he strangled the two girls to protect his identity, but actually the Crown rejected this, saying it was part of his perverted sadism, that that was part of the act that he enjoyed. Going to go back to Derek Pierce. Remember the inspector who got in a bit of trouble on his own? So an altercation between him and the woman that he was dating. Yeah. I don't know if they were dating or whether he was just pursuing her, but there was an altercation. He was summoned to court about the alleged attack on the PC. There was also another charge against him for dangerous driving at this point. He was driving home a colleague who was drunk and the drunk friend apparently grabbed the wheel and like swerved the car. But all charges were dropped. On the 22nd of January 1988, almost three years after Don Ashworth was murdered and almost five years after Linda Mann was murdered, Colin was sentenced and the family of the two murdered girls were there. Colin said he was guilty of the two murders and to an indecent insult and conspiracy to pervert the course of justice for getting Ian Kelly to take the blood test for him. But he pleaded not guilty to the kidnap of the girl that he abducted he gets a double life sentence for the murders and 10 years for each rape and three years for each sex assault and three years for getting Ian to do the blood test for him. So I worked this out to be 29 years plus two life sentences, but I was wrong. Oh, I was probably wrong anyways, but the terms were, it was decided that the terms would run concurrently, meaning at the same time, (laughs) what cancels each other out. If you commit 10 rapes or you commit one, You serve the same amount of time because you're serving the same sentence at the same time. Was that a normal thing to do? It happens. I've heard it happen multiple times. I don't get it. I just feel like they should be added on to each other.
1: Yeah, because otherwise it cancels
2: each other out. You're not serving time for a lot of those crimes. And there's no regard for the fact that these are escalating. And also, he was not given a minimum term, which means he could have been released within 10 years. The public, the press and the police were all outraged, as you can imagine. Ian Kelly got 18 months, suspended for two years for taking the blood test for Colin Pitchfork, so he got no jail time. Don Ashworth's mother, Barbara, believed that if he had... This is such an interesting point, right? Because Colin pleaded guilty. Don Ashworth's mother, Barbara, believes that if he had actually gone to trial, if he pleaded not guilty and gone to trial, then people would have heard the full extent of his evil activities, and maybe the sentencing would have been more harsh. Isn't that so interesting that like the fact that he pleaded guilty means a lesser sentence, possibly the families wanted to bring back the death penalty. And so did the public. Now that DNA would prove outright guilt in theory, I can't blame them to be honest, because that's a fucking ridiculous sentence. The bakery manager who came forth about the conversation in the pub, the reason why this guy was caught and convicted, she was awarded only half of the reward money. The other half was not awarded to anyone. And again to that, I ask, why the fuck not?
1: Yeah, without her coming forward, yeah. I mean, it would have still been an unsolved case.
2: Colin was cleared. As far as the police knew, he'd taken a blood test. It was physically impossible for him to have been the murderer. So without that woman, that fucking legend, we'll call her what it is. Anyway... <laughs> During this investigation, Leicestershire Constabulary and the Forensic Science Service took blood and saliva samples from over 5,500 local men during the course of the investigation. So that was the biggest blooding ever. Kathleen and Eddie had actually moved away from the village during all this, but they moved back after Colin was jailed. And that's the end. Just kidding. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Does it end with some positives? No. Oh, that's where the book ends, because it ends a couple of years after the trial. But it's sadly not the end of the Colin Pitchfork story. Oh, God. In prison, Colin was on good behavior, in quotation marks, and he got a degree and became an expert in transcription of printed music into Braille. I feel like this guy should have had all privileges taken away
1: from him. You know what? I'm all for rehabilitation in prison. And I think other countries have much better systems than here for doing that. Especially because without rehabilitation, the chances of reoffending are much higher, but some people don't deserve any good to happen to them. I know. And what he was doing sounded fun. <laughs> I know. What he was doing sounded fucking amazing in terms mm-hmm. of the transcription. I did not even know that you could transcribe music into Braille. I was a music teacher. Didn't know that.
2: He regularly appealed for parole, but was always rejected. The families of the victims obviously opposed his release. We're going to fast forward to April 2016 and Colin is refused parole again, but he's moved to an open prison. What does that mean? That he gets day release? Fucking hell. It's thought that he was moved to HM Prison Hill in Gloucestershire because he had been seen around Bristol. Imagine seeing him. Once a sex offender
1: and a murderer, always a sex offender and a murderer. We know because it's a combination of nature and nurture and your brain, like something to do with the prefrontal cortex, that there's certain things that you can't fucking rehabilitate.
2: Yeah. Well, do you want to know who was responsible for this move of calling Pitchfork to an open prison? Who? I've called this section, More Reasons to Hate Michael Gove. Oh, for fuck's sake. Oh, Jesus. That's not a name I expected to hear
1: after I left teaching. Okay.
2: Yeah. So Michael Gove, who fucked teachers over multiple times over and the education system as a whole. We don't have time to get into that, but he did.
1: No, but I do have a little anecdote. I remember I worked for a head who was knighted, sir, who announced to us in our staff meeting once that we would be very privileged to receive a visit from Michael Gove to the school. (sighs) Thankfully, it never happened, but I wouldn't call it a privilege if it did.
2: So Michael Gove was the justice secretary at the time. So he approved the transfer of Colin Pitchfork to an open prison. To that, I say, hashtag the Tories. Jesus.
1: How the fuck would you ever think that's a good idea? From what we know, what we know about sex offenders, how is that a good idea?
2: I don't know. And this was 2016, so we had a lot of the information we have now. Okay, so now fast forward, it doesn't get better, to 2021. So this is very, very recent. Colin challenged his sentencing and was granted parole in June 2021 and released on license on the 1st of September, 2021. He was recalled for breaching his license conditions by approaching young women while on walks in November. Fucking precisely. Less than two months. What did they think? He cannot behave for less than two months. I don't think anyone, apart from maybe Michael Gove, is surprised by this. Do you remember Detective Chief Superintendent David Baker, one of the first on the scene of the Linda Mann murder, mm-hmm. he says that Colin is a psychopath and it will never be safe to release him. Do you know what? We have enough evidence and enough case studies to know that, that people who commit certain crimes reoffend. And also, I don't believe in the death penalty, but I do think if you've murdered someone, and if you've murdered multiple people, then you spend the rest of your life in jail. Yeah, I agree. I don't even know why any of this is an issue.
1: And I feel the same about sex offenders. Yeah, same because they will reoffend and that's it. They will
2: reoffend. I like honestly, DM me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I would love to hear a case study of a sex offender who was fully rehabilitated. Yeah. Yeah, send us that. We would love to hear about it. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to end on a final terrifying note. Do you remember I said we're going to have to record an update before this goes on? Oh out? yeah, tell me because in December 2022, this month, the parole board are going to consider his release again.
1: I just don't even know why this is a conversation that happens.
2: Fingers crossed that they reject his application for parole. I'm happy for my taxes to be paying for him to be in jail. Please keep him in jail. Please, I will pay you extra. There's actually a movement for the hearing to be made public. So if it is, you know that I will be following that. Colin is 62 years old now. So for me, that tells me he's still capable physically of doing harm to others. Yeah, I don't know what physical shape he's in. And I don't know if that should matter at all, but I just feel like the fact that he's probably physically capable.
1: you know what? I was watching a documentary about the Jehovah's Witnesses on Hey you, and I remember they mentioned something about a pedophile or a sex offender. The amount of offenses that they will have in a lifetime is like in the hundreds. And it doesn't stop when they're old. That's the thing. And I remember hearing that thinking, it doesn't stop with age. It continues. And by the end of their life, it can be in the hundreds. And we call in fucking in the thousands. With yeah, his flash. he already
2: confessed to over a thousand Yeah. so what I will say is report fucking flashers mm-hmm. because hopefully at some point they might not be able to catch him after one or two occasions but if everyone reports when they get flashed then hopefully we'll catch some fucking flashers before it goes any further put people on the radar so when these things happen they know who to fucking call on Yeah. but oh it's just I just feel like this is one of those cases where we have learned And progress so far in terms of view on flashing, in terms of the DNA advances. But what a horrible piece of shit.
1: The guy who killed Sarah Everard, the police force had it on record that he was a flasher. Yeah, I mean, he was a police officer. And he didn't lose his job. And there's, I mean, there's certain things that are just mind blowing. Mind blowing that the police force knew that he was guilty of flashing, yet they kept him on.
2: And I feel like it's only since the Sarah Everard case. And we'll post a link in the show notes to a summary of that for those that are unfamiliar. But basically, it's a woman that got murdered by an off-duty police officer, uh, pretending to be on duty, I think. And it turns out he had a long history of flashing that the police knew about. And I feel like the, the conversation about flashing and its severity is, has really got into the forefront now because of that. Fucking hell. But report everything. Report fucking everything, even if it's suspicious behavior and you're like, oh, I'm not sure whether the police will take it seriously. I'm not sure. Fucking call it it anyways and let the police decide because you don't know what else they've got. Yeah. And the same thing is when I was teaching and we did safeguarding training every year. If you even
1: think there's any fucking inkling of of a doubt that there's anything untoward happening, report it. It's not your call to make whether you report it or not or whether it's a big deal or it is fucking report it.
2: You don't know what other bits of information people have on that person, on that potential victim, etc. You don't know. You might be helping them build a very important case against someone.
1: Yeah. Do you know what it makes me so angry that this guy's going to be fucking
2: released? You know. Well, hopefully he won't. It's crazy they're even considering it. I feel like when he got recalled to prison for breaking his his release conditions, that that should mean no more bail applications. No yeah, more parole. Done. We tried it. You fucked up. That privilege is gone now.
1: It should be enough that we know enough about, or psychologists, criminologists, whatever, these fucking specialists know enough about criminal behavior and criminal psychology to know that people like that don't change. And you are letting them back out into the wild and them on future victims. Yeah. That makes me fucking
2: angry. It really does. So that's the case of Colin Pitchfork. Uh, you know. See you next week. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh, next week. Oh my God. You know, after this case, and I'm thinking about what case I'm going to do next out of the ones I researched because I didn't like this one. I mean, I don't like, you know, do we
2: really like any of them? I don't know. Why are we doing this? Why do we do this to ourselves? I don't know. Oh God. My next case is a little bit easier. What does that mean? Easier? Doesn't involve kids. Yeah, it doesn't involve kids. It's a little bit less scary to the general public. Okay. Colin Pitchfork is particularly disgusting and terrifying because he's, I mean, he could be released this month is what that means. I'm not going to advocate for vigilante justice, but if this guy gets released.
1: Then we're not responsible for what happens.
2: Then we're not responsible, but I can see that happening. I just cannot believe that we are discussing the possibility of him being out on the streets. The fact that he was in an open prison is already disgusting enough to me. Sometimes you just wonder, these people, these decision
1: makers, why are they so fucking dumb? Michael Gove! You will. At
2: us and tell us what you were thinking. Tell us.
1: God, this really makes Michael Gove's crimes to uh, education. It's kind of minimizes those in
2: comparison to this. Well, not really, because if you fuck up the whole education system, you've got a lot more desperate people that might turn to crime. So, well, yeah. I mean, he's just, just a son of a bitch. Fuck Michael Gove. Yeah. I Don't think we have any Tory supporters
1: listening to us. I highly doubt that we do. <laughs> I highly doubt it. But we'd love to know who are our listeners. Send us a message. Tell us. You don't I... need to
2: tell us who you vote for. <laughs> you can if you want. Tell us what you want to hear more of do let us know who you are. Drop us a note, what you think of our episodes, what you want us to cover and so forth. All right. See you next week. Mwah. Bye. Bye.
0: Make a difference. Relish a great work-life balance. Enjoy generous benefits and competitive pay. Go home each night feeling fulfilled by your work. Work for an employer of choice. Work for Blue Ridge Hospice. We're always looking to hire compassionate RNs, CNAs, or anyone interested in office or thrift shop work. We've been your not-for-profit community hospice since 1981. Visit our website for more information or to apply today at blueridgehospice.org. That's blueridgehospice.org. Blue Ridge Hospice is an equal opportunity employer.